0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with William Kishadis, author of the book, William Still, The Underground Railroad and the Angel at Philadelphia. Bill, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks for having me, Mark. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our podcast. I was was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
1: I've always considered myself a a teacher. I started out in... uh, high school teaching uh, back in the 1980s, and after I got my PhD, um, went into college teaching where where I am now, but as my writing career picked up, I basically consider myself more of a writer uh, now, and I do biography, American history, uh, and, and baseball history.
0: What was it that led you to uh, choose William Still a, as a subject? What, what, what drew you to him? What you, led you to conclude that uh, a biography of him was needed?
1: I was uh, working as uh, director of uh, public programs at the Chester County Historical Society in Westchester, Pennsylvania, uh, back in the late nineteen nineties, and teaching at Westchester University. And that area, Chester County, was a hotbed of abolitionism uh, back in the 19th century and at the Historical Society we had about 5,000 feet of uh, museum space and we decided to do uh, an exhibit on the Underground Railroad and I was asked to curate that exhibit because I had done some research in that area and of course if you're going to talk about Chester County and Underground Railroad You have to talk about William Still, because many of the fugitives that came through Chester County ended up uh, in Philadelphia uh, under the guidance of William Still, who basically uh, coordinated the entire eastern line of the Underground Railroad. And the more I read about him, the more fascinated I became with him. And I also was very attracted by his 1872 book simply titled The Underground Railroad because it is and remains the only authentic primary source we have on the Underground Railroad. Now, let me clarify that a little bit. Yes, there are primary sources on the Underground Railroad, but Stills' source is the only authentic because it is created by an Underground Railroad agent. It has tremendous detail to it. And it was just too compelling not to explore that in greater depth. A dear friend of mine, a late friend of mine, James McGowan, who was on the, um, the board uh, for that exhibit, the consultant board for that exhibit, was also very interested in William Still. And Jim began to do a detailed database of all the runaways that Still had mentioned in his book. And that was a chore, chore, an amazing chore. And unfortunately, Jim died in 2008, and it was only about halfway completed, and he asked me to complete his work. Um, and, And I did. Fortunately, I did. And the findings were... Unbelievable, because some of them challenged the historiography on the Underground Railroad, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But the reason I wrote the book was he's too compelling a figure not to write about, and frankly, he's been largely ignored.
0: That was what I found surprising when I was reading your book was as, as, I'm, as I'm learning about this role that he played, uh, the people with whom he interacted, it, it, I was really surprised that his name doesn't stand out more in terms of the historiography about the Underground Railroad.
1: Well, his, his book does. His book does. <laughs> and in terms <laughs> of the, the, the number of fugitives that have been uh, been said that he helped, we're in the thousands. Well What I found out was that there were 995 of them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, once you identify them and you can categorize these runaways uh, in, in a host of variables ranging from date of escape to mode of transportation to who their owner was and what their skin complexion was, and you run a multivariate analysis, You come up with some fascinating findings, you really do. So as I said, his book was known, and people who were working in this field constantly quoted from the book, and there were three or four escapes that were high-profile escapes that still aided in, and those have always been reported, but still himself as a figure was largely ignored. Uh, He was just basically looked at as, well, you know, the first historian of the Underground Railroad.
0: Hmm. I was wondering if you could uh, start us off in terms of his life by talking a bit about his family and their experience with slavery. Because as you explained, uh, it was this very uh, complicated one that, you know, that brings in elements that, as you describe in your book, you know, still finds himself encountering later on in his life.
1: Well, the nuclear family of William Still, uh, really the first uh, dealings with it and and, and mention of it that I found uh, was uh, the family consisted of Levi Steele and his wife, Sydney, who were slaves owned by a Maryland tobacco planter by the name of Saunders Griffin. And as of 1804, that family consisted of four children, uh, Levi Jr., who was eight at the time, Peter, who was six at the time, and two infant daughters about a year apart, Mahala and Katura. Now, in 1803-1804, Levi purchased his freedom, and he relocated to Burlington County, New Jersey, with the plan that Sydney. Is that either he would pay for uh, Sydney's freedom and his children's freedom, or Sydney would escape. Uh, Sydney escaped twice, the first time in spring of 1805 with all four of their children, and she was captured. She escaped again in the winter of 1806, but this time she just took the two girls with her, and she was successful. She had to make a choice, a very difficult choice, and that was leaving her two sons in slavery. And the reason she made that choice was because she thought that the boys were old enough where they would be able to really defend for themselves. The girls were infants and she knew that the dangers that lay ahead for female slaves, um, rape, you know, brutal beating, uh, and, and she just made that decision. She made it to New Jersey. She changed her name to Sydney the couple changed their name to Still, and they settled in Indian Mills in Burlington County. It's about, I guess, seven miles east of, of Medford, New Jersey. And Levi hired himself out to local farmers till about 1815 when he purchased his own farm. And while this is all going on, uh, there's an odyssey that, that that is going on with Levi Jr. and Peter. Uh between 1806 and 1821, they are sold to three different owners, the last one being a uh, Alabama cotton planter by the name of Levi Gist. And it's uh, there at uh, it, that cotton plantation that Levi is worked to death and he dies at the age of 29. Um, and Peter, uh, purchases freedom and he makes his way to Philadelphia in 1850. And he comes across unbeknownst to him, his brother, William still, um, Levi and charity had a total of, I guess, 12 children, uh, seven more. Are, are born to them in New Jersey, and the youngest one was William, uh, who was born on October 7, 1821. So that's pretty much the evolution of that family. So
0: how is it that... In what, in what capacity does Peter meet William? What, what is William doing at that time?
1: Well, they meet in August of 1850. And three years before that... Uh, William takes a job with the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society as a mail clerk and a janitor. Um, And he's, you know, pretty entrenched in that job. And August 6th, 1850, his brother, Peter, shows up at at the offices at 832 South Street in Philadelphia. And they're talking uh, about... Peter, he's known as Peter Friedman at that period of time. Uh, Friedman, really kind of a, a play on the name Friedman, but also uh, in honor of the abolitionist who helped him uh, get to freedom, and and um, whose name was Friedman. And they're talking about Peter's past, and Peter tells them that his family... Um, And his mother in particular, uh, he is told, came up into the middle Atlantic states, and he's hoping to put notices in the Philadelphia churches and see if he could find his mother. And as he's describing the mother, it becomes very clear to William that he, in fact, is (laughs) describing charity. And he writes in his book, I could see in the eyes of my long-lost brother, you know, the the uh, the soul that I I had never met, and he takes Peter home to New Jersey, and he's reunited with his mother, uh, and Peter plants roots there uh, wow. in Jersey as well. Wow, <laughs> I
0: was wondering if you could maybe uh, now take us back a bit and explain uh, what the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society was. And what its role was in the process of abolition? Were they a lobbying organization? Were they uh, working to try to uh, end slavery more directly? And and how was it that that William Still uh, came to work for them?
1: Well, it's a it's a rather when you talk about the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society, it's a rather convoluted history uh, because the first anti-slavery society in in Pennsylvania. Uh, was really started in 1775, and it was known as the Society for the Relief of Free Negroes Unlawfully Held in Bondage. And their focus was on legal intervention for those blacks and Native Americans who claimed to be illegally enslaved. Um, Now, about 10 years later, that society is reorganized as the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, but it still focuses on legal intervention, not really helping escape slaves. Um, The Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society is a different institution, and it comes into being as an outgrowth of William Lloyd Garrison's American Anti-Slavery Society, which was founded in philadelphia in 1833 and a a small constellation of uh, anti-slavery societies grew out of the american anti-slavery society uh... and and they were in philadelphia the first one uh... the same year is founded it's called the philadelphia female anti-slavery society it's the most inclusive of all the anti-slavery societies uh, being composed of you know male, female, black, white, Quaker, non-Quaker, and by the way, these anti-slavery societies are heavily composed of Quakers. Uh, the Quakers being the very first body to issue a anti-slavery petition dating back to 1688. So they're major players in this movement. And then the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society spiraled out of the American Anti-Slavery Society, in 1837. Um, and this was founded by Lucretia Mott and Jane Miller McKim. And they are a much more liberal, dare I say, radical anti-slavery society than the Pennsylvania Abolition Society. Uh, and, and they do dedicate themselves to helping escaping slaves from the South to freedom in the North, and in many cases, on to uh, uh, freedom in, in Canada. And it, it grows by, by leaps and bounds. By 1840, we know that the membership is 1,500, and most of them are radical Quakers. Um, in 1837, Robert Purvis, who is a uh, fairly wealthy black I should say Free Black, Mulatto, Philadelphian, organizes a vigilance committee uh, and publishes the proceedings of the uh, the anti-slavery society in a newspaper called the Pennsylvania Freeman. Um, And it remains as such until 1842, that is the vigilance committee, until 1842 when race riots break out in Philadelphia due to job competition between free blacks and and white artisans, um, you know, in the wake of steam powered industry and, and um, then Purvis abandons the vigilance committee. So there's a lull there. And then we have the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850 uh, that really, Reinvigorates the the movement. So, in 1852, uh, a new Vigilance Committee is started by the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society, headed by J. Miller McKim. So that's kind of the convoluted history of the founding (laughs) of the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society. But it's important to make those distinctions because the Pennsylvania Anti uh, the Pennsylvania Abolition Society had a very different mission than did the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society.
0: And so Williams still comes to work with it. And as you explain, they don't pay him a lot. It's not a very remunerative job. And yet it's one that he sticks with throughout uh, almost the entirety of the 1850s. What was he doing with the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society? And what was his role in terms of the Underground Railroad that you describe in the book?
1: Well, he took the he took the job in 1847, and initially he's hired as a mail clerk and a janitor. And you're right, he's hired at a pittance. He's paid three three dollars and seventy five cents a week. Um, now, over the the next two years, uh, he he proves himself uh, a very capable uh, and trusted uh, employee of the the Anti-Slavery Society, and he's assigned additional duties. One of those duties is to help J. Miller McKim gather intelligence on the movements of runaways who come to the city and to advance that information to local underground railroad agents. Um, His salary is increased to $7 uh, a week. And then, of course, in 1853, after McKim reorganizes the Philadelphia Vigilance Committee, still is appointed chair of a four-man executive committee to run that vigilance committee and to keep all the records. This is when his interviews begin. Um, and again, it's important to note that you know, Still did aid in uh, runaway escapes Prior to 1853, I mean, you know, he aided in the William and and Ellen Craft escape, the the Henry Box Brown escape, but um, he doesn't start taking down interviews and the information, the detailed information that he takes down until 1853. And that time period, 1853, 1861, which is when he leaves the employ of the Pennsylvania anti-slavery, is a critical years for that book, because there's a lot going on in this movement at that period of time. And, uh, you know, Stills' book becomes a veritable encyclopedia of all the actions that are occurring on the Underground Railroad in Philadelphia.
0: I I was wondering if we could Maybe talk about that book a little bit more now, because I I was thinking, because in your book, and your book is more than just a biography of William Still, to be clear, You're, you're also talking about that region of the Underground Railroad, and what we can learn from the interviews that he took and the data that he collected. What does that tell us about the operations of the Underground Railroad in this region? And to what degree does this uh, data correct some of the misconceptions that we might have had about those operations up until this point?
1: Those are are challenging questions. (laughs) Um, Let me me address the, the first one. Uh, which is Philadelphia and the role that uh, Philadelphia played. You have to understand that Philadelphia has the largest free black community in the nation in the 1850s, with almost 20,000 members in, in a total population of about a quarter million people. The majority of these free blacks were poor, and they lived in, in, in the wards in the outskirts of the city, the wards like Kensington, Spring Garden, and Northern Liberties. Now, at the same time, there's a small property class you know, that, that represents what W.E. Du Bois would later call the Talented Tenth. And, and they're also involved in abolitionism. The second piece that's important to understand is Philadelphia was founded by Quakers. Pennsylvania was founded by Quakers. Quakers, because of their religious beliefs, and the equality, the spiritual equality of all human beings were naturals for the Underground Railroad Movement. However, it's important to understand that after 1776, when Philadelphia Yearly Meeting, the governing body of the Society of Friends in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware, after 1776, that's the date, when the yearly meeting makes it a cause for disownment for any Quakers to own slaves, after that date, the majority of Quakers wash their hands of the anti-slavery movement. It is left to the most radical, the minority of Quakers to carry on that movement. And and these Quakers who get involved in the Underground Railroad are working hand-in-hand with the free black population To help these slaves escape. So the point I'm making there is a very important point because mythology holds that every Quaker was not only an abolitionist but an Underground Railroad agent. When they're not, not every Quaker was even an abolitionist, and those who were abolitionists were in a minority. But only a few of those, the radicals, were Underground Railroad agents. And I should also say that even those Quakers who were abolitionists did not agree on the same approach to the abolition of slavery. So Philadelphia is a very unique place at this period of time, and it's because of the free black population and the Quaker population that that city becomes the nerve center of the entire operation of the Eastern Line, which really begins in northern Virginia, Delaware, Maryland, and works its way into Pennsylvania, uh, New Jersey, New York, New England, and Canada. So that's where that line goes. There's another line. There's a western line of the Underground Railroad that goes up through uh, western Virginia, uh, Kentucky, uh, Ohio. The nerve center there is Cincinnati, and uh, still's counterpart in Cincinnati is a Quaker abolitionist by the name of Levi Coffin. Uh, Now, I, I, you know, with the exception of one incident, I don't even touch on the Western line. That's, that's, that's a concern for the next book that I'm writing. (laughs) Um, So, uh, you know, that should straighten you out really on the, the mythology around uh, the Underground Railroad. Now, in terms of Still's book. Uh, And and I'm glad you said that my book is more than just a biography, because when I I first finished the multivariate analysis, which was probably in 2015, I wrote it up, and it was over 120 pages, not including the database itself, which is like another 40 pages. And I I offered this to about a dozen publishers, and nobody wanted it. And, you know, I was I was finally told that if I want it published, I should wrap it around a biography of William Still. And yet, to me, yes, Still's life is important, but every bit as important is that database and the foundings, because it does challenge uh, at least in four cases the findings of 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 these runaways and their movement. Uh, and if you'd like me to go into those ways now, I could do that, or we could wait. Uh, no, please do. Okay. The most important statistical findings that I came across with stills fugitives is that, number one, water escapes are much greater than has been previously reported. The historiography stresses that the majority of runaways, the overwhelming majority of runaways— escaped over land and on foot, and it marginalizes water escapes. But with stills runaways, the 995 runaways, the most common means of escape was watercraft. That is boats, schooners, steamers. And it makes sense. It's consistent with the fact that uh, many of the runaways came from Maryland's eastern shore or traveled through Maryland's eastern shore, and they had easy access to the Chesapeake Bay. Now, if I want to get in particular of the three hundred and fifty cases where means of escape, there's nine hundred and fifty runaways, and you must understand they're not variables for every single one of them. In, I, there's three hundred and fifty cases where the means of escape is known, and of those three hundred and fifty cases, one hundred and fifty-two escaped via watercraft, whereas, and that's about forty-three percent. Whereas the other one hundred and forty-six, or forty-two percent escaped on foot. The remainder were escapes on horse and carriage, uh, horseback, railroad, and there was one who uh, escaped uh, in a crate. Okay? So that's the first major finding. I think the second major finding is that stills runaways show a much higher incidence of female escape than is stressed by the historiography. The historiography stresses that single men between the ages of 18 and 32 composed the overwhelming majority of runaways. And after 1850, the historiography claims that more women began to escape, but when they did, they did so in groups led by males. Now, this is not completely accurate when we look at Stills' runaways. Of the 967 runaways whose gender is known, 730 or 75% were male, so that's consistent with the historiography, but 237 or 25% were female, which is also consistent with, you know, of the lesser number, but of the 334 runaways known to have escaped alone, 81% are males and 19% were female. While it's not as common for women to run away alone, it did happen and the historiography doesn't give much emphasis to that fact the third thing the third major finding uh where there's a difference is in terms of the value of the runaways and the rewards that are offered for them the rewards are higher than the five percent of total value assumed by the historiography more specifically the historiography claims that rewards Offered for a runaway was based on 5% or less of the fugitive's total value. In other words, a fugitive who would be worth, let's say, $1,600 in 1860 would bring a maximum reward of just $80, whether it's in state or out of state. But with stills runaways, of the 73 cases where a reward is given, 53 or 73% had a reward between $150 and $500. And if you apply the 5% theory to that, those slaves would be worth between $3,000 and $10,000 each, which is extremely high for a slave at a time when we're talking about $1,000 for a male in his prime between the ages of 16 and 32, and maybe twice that much for a female during childbearing years. So $3,000 to $10,000 each for a slave, that's, that just is non-existent. Um the final thing, uh well actually there's two other things. Um the, the fourth difference that I found is in individual versus group escapes. Still in Still's case there are much more group escapes than have been already assumed. The historiography claims that single male fugitives ran away and they did so alone because they had few to no family ties. In other words, um the the males with families and females remained in bondage in in order to keep the family unit together. Well, what I found with Still's runaways is that of the 995 he assisted, 660 or 66% escaped in 173 groups of two or more members compared to 336 or 34% who traveled alone. The largest group of these 173 runaways consisted of 28 members, and they, that group consisted of four large families. Five other groups had 10 or more members. 20 additional groups consisted of six to eight runaways, and what this tells me is that the desire to keep families together led Stills' runaways to escape bondage, not to stay in bondage. And then the final thing, and in, in some and I get it. I mean, some statisticians would say that this is, the numbers are so small that this is a statistically insignificant finding, but I don't find it such. This deals with the, the, the runaways who uh, are literate, and the historiography claims that mulattoes were more prone to be literate than dark-complexioned slaves because they were house servants, and many were favored by the master some were so favored that they learned how to read and write to some degree, whereas dark-complexion slaves were field hands and had you know, very little opportunity to become literate, and, and they would be the ones to run away. Well, stills' runaways show a slightly different pattern here. Of the 390 runaways whose skin color is known, 289 or 74% can be considered dark-complexion or black, compared to 101 or 26% who were described as mulatto. This is consistent with historiography, but what's not consistent is the assumption that light-skinned slaves were more literate than dark-skinned slaves. Because of the 69 cases where literacy is known, 25 or six percent uh, of the mulattoes were literate, compared to 21 or 30% of the blacks. And, and, and that 6% difference is not all that appreciable. So I find that as yet another challenge to the historiography. And there are others, but I think that you know, these were the major findings that really are, are hopefully going to be uh, taken into consideration in the future when, uh, when the Underground Railroad is written about.
0: One of the things that you do in this book that I really liked was that you do talk about what these numbers reveal about the operations of the Underground Railroad, who was using it, how they escaped. But you also put names to these numbers. You you, you put stories to them. And I was wondering if you would share with us one or two of the stories from your book uh, about escaped slaves that, that William still wrote about or, or were even uh, personally involved with in terms of helping them escape.
1: Okay. Um, let me Let me just digress for one moment, because you said something very important. You said that I put names to these families. Um, now, this is very important, and this is what led my friend Jim, Jim McGowan to start that database. William still is very clear about the purpose of writing his book, and his purpose was to reunite families who were separated in slavery after slavery was abolished. That was his purpose, Okay. Mm-hmm. and i'm i'm sure that it was successful in that sense but i'm sure in other ways there were many families that were never reunited which is tragic and what jim and i wanted to do when we were working on that database was yes to give names to these numbers and 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 the book is going to provide the entire database in hard print so African-Americans who are doing their genealogy and can trace to a, a ancestor who was a runaway can at least locate that runaway and find out about them. So that was in many ways, you know, we were trying to fulfill William stills purpose, uh, but just doing it from, you know, the standpoint of 150 years later. Um, but that that's important. That's really important to us. Um, now, you talk about the escapes. Everybody knows about Henry Box Brown, the <laughs> Richmond, Virginia slave who had himself nailed in a crate and shipped to freedom to the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society. Everybody knows about William and Ellen Craft, who escaped from Macon, Georgia at Christmas time. Uh, Ellen, who was very light-skinned, was disguised herself as a a uh, young slave master, uh, she put her right hand in a sling and disguised, uh, put her her face in a wrap, uh, feigning that she couldn't, so she couldn't write or she couldn't talk, uh, and William was the slave escorting her, and they made it all the way to Philadelphia. Everybody knows about Jane Johnson. In fact, uh, a whole book called Price of a Child, uh, brilliant book uh, novel by L- Lorraine Carey uh, was written about this escape. Jane Johnson was uh, the son of the U.S. minister to Nicaragua, John Wheeler, and still confronts Wheeler on the, Pens- on the Philadelphia docks uh, as he's preparing uh, to go across river to Camden and debark for Nicaragua with Jane Johnson and her two sons and still offers Jane Johnson her freedom. She takes it right there. Wheel is uh, restrained and uh, he brings a civil suit uh, against uh, still, which is later dismissed. Uh, So everybody knows about those escapes. They're the big ones, but I personally find um, the escape, of peter stills the plan to free peter stills wife and their three children from a cotton plantation in alabama to be uh... just as compelling and it's much less known although uh, a a book uh... was written about this in the late nineteenth century called the kidnapped and the ransomed um, and, and, and I'll, I'll try to be brief in retelling this, but it is, it is a very compelling story. Um, after Peter was reunited with William in 1850, he, he told William right from the start that he had a wife and three children who were still in bondage uh, in, in, uh, in Alabama. She belonged to an owner by the name of McKiernan, uh, who was a cotton, a large cotton planter. And they, William and Peter, started to plan an escape. Um, they put uh, a notice in the Pennsylvania Freeman about this situation, and a Quaker by the name of Seth Conklin reads the article, and he offers to go down to Alabama, posing as a slave master, and get Vina and the children and he does. Uh, He helps them escape, and he gets as far as Vincennes, Indiana, where the party is captured by a slave hunter. Conklin is murdered. His body is tied to a cotton gin and thrown in a river. Vina and her three children are returned to slavery, and Peter, um, you know, this is all happening in 1851. Uh, Peter contacts McKiernan and says, Okay, look, how much is it going to cost? And he's told $5,000 if he wants to purchase the freedom of his wife and his children. So Peter goes on a three year long anti slavery lecture circuit. And finally, in 1854, he purchases the freedom of Vina and their children. Now, the story is much more detailed than that. And uh, Conklin and Vina and 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 her children are almost captured two or three times even before they're captured, but it was just simply amazing to me that they could get as far as Indiana, traveling from Alabama, because most slaves in the Deep South would not even bother to escape, uh, and, and we know that most of the slave escapes, I'd say well over even two-thirds of the escapes, came from, you know, border states, uh, specifically from Delaware, Maryland, what became West Virginia, uh, Kentucky. Um, You know, these are the places where the runaways are coming from. Now, I did find that uh, states like Georgia and South Carolina, there were runaways from there. Um, but they're the outliers, you know, with stills runaways, uh, for the most part, if a slave is going to try to run away from South Carolina or Georgia, they're going to go out to the Florida panhandle because, uh, that, you know, that is wilderness and it's inhabited by the Seminole Indians who had once been enslaved by the Spanish. So they had empathy for these runaways. And they, they took them into their own communities. Um, but, again, the, uh, the Conklin attempt is just fascinating to me, you know, for, you know, for, for that reason alone, uh, that he got as far as, as Indiana from Alabama before he was caught. It was a very
0: powerful story as you tell it in the book. And I think I I liked it as well because it underscored something that it's, it's very, it can be very easy to forget, which is the risks that were run, not just by the slaves trying to escape, but by the people trying to help them. And I thought that also came across when you were recounting uh, stills encounter with uh, John Brown prior to Harper's ferry and the very real possibility that you, that you bring up that, you know, had still not been so wary of John Brown's offer, it could have uh, put him in, in incredibly uh, serious trouble.
1: Right. By the way, Mark, you're doing an excellent job. These questions are, are wonderful. And I think they're really giving the listener a very good idea of what I'm trying to do with the book here. And and, and I will talk about John Brown and the danger William still put himself in. But I, I'd like to mention one thing before I do that. According to the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law, uh, which, which tightened a previous slave law uh, or runaway fugitive slave law that was uh, enacted in 1793, but according to that 1850 uh, Fugitive Slave Law, if uh, a federal marshal refuses to arrest an alleged fugitive, he's fined $1,000, okay? If a private citizen refuses to help in the recapture of a fugitive slave, they're fined $1,000 and or could do six months in prison. If a private citizen is caught harboring a fugitive slave, same thing. Usually, those six months, longer than six months in jail, and the one thousand dollar fine. So, what we're talking about here is that the white underground railroad agents are really putting themselves on the line because if you're charged, fined a thousand dollars, like for example, Thomas Garrett. Thomas Garrett was a dear friend of William Stills. He was a Wilmington Quaker who sent a lot of runaways from his station to in Philadelphia, through Chester County because he had a bunch of Quaker relatives in there who would secret them to Philadelphia. But in 1848, Thomas Garrett was found guilty of harboring a whole family of fugitive slaves, and he was fined $5,000. Now, Garrett owned his, old, his own uh, coal and hardware business in Wilmington, and... That would bankrupt him. But fortunately, uh, other underground railroad agents who were better off paid off the fine for him. So the whites that are involved in this could go bankrupt easily with some of the fines they're being charged. Or even if they go to prison, well, they, they, they can't work their farms. Many of them are farmers. Or they can't ply their business. Still, and the free black community, it are even in greater danger because if they assist, it would not be uncommon for a slave catcher to kidnap a free black and sell him into slavery. The papers don't mean anything to them, the Freedom Papers. Uh, and you're right. Uh, still, did put himself in in danger uh, in in 1859 after John Brown. Uh, launched his revolt at Harper's Ferry, there were found among uh, the belongings of the Raiders uh, uh, some papers that had William Still's name on them. And when this got back to Still, he really feared that his records, meaning all these interviews that he was taking, would be found. And they would not only implicate him, but also those runaways and other agents that he identified so we hid him in a crypt at Mount Lebanon Cemetery under the care of uh, another agent, Jacob White, Sr., uh, until, you know, 1865 with the passage of the 13th Amendment. So, you know, still it took a lot of courage to do what he did. It, it, it really did, as well as for the free black community themselves.
0: And yet you get the point by this uh, time in his life that he really is feeling that he needs to do something else because it I mean, you describe he, as you mentioned earlier he he did get more pay over time uh, for doing what he did but it, it was it certainly wasn't enough for him to have to, to really have his own family to 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 be prosperous uh, and 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 independent on his own and so he 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 undertakes that leap in 1861 where he goes and starts his own business how well does that go for him?
1: Well, you know, I'll tell you, um, he only had $300 cash to his name when he made that move. His real wealth was in land. He owned $2,000 worth of real estate in and around Philadelphia. Um, And, you know, what he did was he he continued at 832 South Street by renting the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Office. And on the first floor, he sold coal to pay the rent or the second floor where he, you know, he, he had a family dwelling. Um, and his, his, uh, his stove and coal business actually kind of took off because within a year's time, he was able to hire um, some skilled sheet iron workers, you know, who were churning out these gas stoves and boilers and, and heaters and, and they were, you know, top quality and still was attracting both black and white customers. Uh, so pretty much by 1863, he had established himself as one of the city's most successful black businessmen. Um, now, the other thing about Still, and I, you know, I'm sad to say this, because, you know, <laughs> up until 1865, still, <laughs> still was a hero of mine. And the more I read about him as an Underground Railroad agent, the more I admired him. But, you know, you're doing a biography. You've got to cover the whole life. And what I found out about William Still, uh, as a civil, early civil rights pioneer, I really didn't like. And what what I mean by that is, um, after the Civil War ended, um, he begins a uh, organization called the Social Civil Statistical Association of the Colored People of Pennsylvania. And what this organization does is it's really a launching ground for him, an organizational uh, foundation to collect data on free blacks uh, in, in Pennsylvania, as, as well as to advocate for universal suffrage, something that had been you know, taken away from Pennsylvania blacks in 1838 with the new constitution and you know, he gets involved in, in a lot of humanitarian and charitable activities. He's, act, he's an active member of the Freedman's aid commission. He establishes an orphan asylum for the children of black sailors. Uh, you know, he's president of the Berean savings association, which is the, the first black owned bank in the city. He organizes a Sabbath school for the Presbyterian church, and he is involved in, Uh, trying to uh, integrate the Philadelphia streetcars, something that he'd been involved in since 1859, still continues to rely on moral suasion for all of his arguments. You know, he writes, you know, arguments, you know, op-eds saying why the streetcars should be integrated, because at this period of time, the only place a black person can ride on the streetcar is, is on the uh, platform uh, that's outside the streetcar. They can't go inside the streetcar. That's only for whites. And still has been fighting this since 1859, but he doesn't become involved politically with it. Um, and he also works together with white reformers, especially Quakers. And he has a very rigid morality as well. He, he, he strongly believes in the Protestant work ethic, you know, that personal austerity and unconditional commitment to the cause, you know, is, 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 is the mission of a reformer. But there's a younger generation of black reformers who were coming to the fore after the Civil War. And they are led by Octavius Caddo. And many of these young blacks are graduates of the Institute for Colored Youth, and they are led by CATO, but they include people like Jacob White, Isaac Wares, James Needham, William Fortin, uh, William Nesbitt. And they established their own organization called the Pennsylvania Equal Rights League. And they have no reservations about working through the political process. Um, But generally speaking, the only involvement they have with right reformers is if they're politicians who could advance their costs. Now, this streetcar protest uh, attracts cato and these young reformers. And in four years' time, they succeed in integrating the cars because of the way they do it. And they do it through direct action by either boycotting uh, or going and, and, and going right ahead inside the cars and sitting there uh, and being bounced out, and at the same time working through the political process with the Pennsylvania State Legislature uh, to have this passage. And, you know, of course, in 1867, the radical Republicans in, in Congress are just, you know, on the verge of, of passing uh, the Voting Rights Act. You know, so it, it was a, a very fortunate time that Caddo and his, his, uh, his band are, are getting organized for this because eventually the Republican state legislatures, realizing that they're going to need the black vote to get back into office uh, agree to desegregate the cars. Now, once this happens, still really kind of becomes bitter um, because he could see the effectiveness of working through direct action, confrontation, and the political process, which he just refuses to do. And he also doesn't like that these... um, This younger generation of reformers uh, have a different approach to reform, but they also enjoy life. I mean, they they enjoy the theater. (laughs) They enjoy going dancing. They even start a baseball team called the Pythians, and they're very successful, a Negro League baseball team, and still belittles them, you know, feeling that, you know, you're not serious. How can you be serious when you're engaging in all this frivolity? And then the next showdown comes really in 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 the late 1860s, um, you know, after uh, the blacks get the vote and the dilemma now for blacks is should they vote Republican due to their appreciation uh, for that party's involvement in emancipation in the vote? Or should they use their vote to further the black race regardless of the party, meaning you know, split their vote between the Democrats and, and the Republicans? Well, the young reformers, Caddo and, and his, his members uh, uh, at Pearl, the Pennsylvania Equal Rights League, are staunch Republicans, and they insist on voting for that party. And William's still, on the other hand, like, like other black leaders like Frederick Douglass and people who were part of the earlier abolitionist movement insist that blacks not uh, uh, become tools of the Republican Party and vote their conscience, which means, frankly, to vote the Democrat Party. Well, this kind of comes to a head in October of 1871 with the Philadelphia mayoral election. Philadelphia politics are really split along racial lines with the whites voting Democrat and blacks voting Republican. And the city police, mostly white Irishmen, refused to protect black voters at the polls from white mobs. And one of the worst race riots in the city's history erupts on, the, on October 10th, on, on, on October 10th, 1871, during the, uh, the election. And Caddo is shot to death by a white rioter. He's one of three blacks killed that day. And no one is ever found guilty. Um, and after Caddo's death, some of the, the young reformers become very disillusioned. Um, now, some do increase their involvement in politics. Uh, they start another organization called the Citizens Republican Club, which um, you know, builds their base in, 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 in the 7th Ward of South Philadelphia, which is heavily populated by blacks. But there are other of these young reformers that completely drift away from politics and devote themselves really to black education. They, they really commit themselves to the Institute for Colored Youth um, and, and still himself is really shaken by uh, by Cato's death. Um, although in that election, he broke with the Republican Party and he voted for the Democratic candidate um, he really falls away uh, from from the scene uh, the reform scene even at, at this time, and pretty much from eighteen seventy one till his death in nineteen o two he devotes his energies to writing and publishing his book, the Underground Railroad
0: When does the uh book come out
1: eighteen seventy two is the first edition uh, although he he published he he, um, he purchased the the copyright from Porter and Coates and came out with three subsequent editions in 1879, 1883, and 1886.
0: Hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us a little bit more about that uh, next project that you're working on?
1: Yeah. um, I I, I went to a small Quaker college in the Midwest. Uh, It's called Earlham College, and it was uh, is located in Richmond, Indiana, which was also a hotbed of Quaker abolitionism uh, in the 19th century. And uh, I had just a wonderful uh, American history professor who uh, would, would take our class, uh, you know, to living history museums. And, and one of the, the first museums he took us to was Levi Coffin's house. It, it still exists. Coffin... Coffin actually uh, was an underground railroad agent in what was called Newport, Indiana. It's about five miles uh, west of uh, of Richmond, where Earlham is, uh, and and he was there for I don't know about seven, eight years before he went to Cincinnati and became the so-called president of the Underground Railroad. But I, I just I just fell in love with the Underground Railroad, the stories of the Underground Railroad, and specifically Levi Coffin, uh, and After, and i have always kind of threatened to do a book on Coffin, but, uh, you know, I I, I wasn't around the sources. Um, And, you know, being here in Philadelphia still was much easier to do. Um, But then my son decided to go to my college, and he spent four years and graduated from Earlham. I graduated in 2019. So I was always out there visiting him. And since I was out there, I started picking around and, and, and researching Levi coffin and his involvements in the underground railroad. So, uh, you know, uh, now I have pretty much a pretty solid foundation of research to work from. And, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll start putting together some, uh, you know, an outline and, and, uh, and hopefully in a couple years have a book uh, that will complement uh, this one, uh, Coffin being the, uh, the main agent on the western line and still being the primary agent on the eastern line of the Underground Railroad.
0: Well, I hope that when that book comes out, we can have you back on the New Books Network to uh, discuss it with us.
1: Excellent. Thank you. I'd, I'd appreciate that.
0: Well, Bill, thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Thank you. And thanks for a wonderful interview. You you were you were spot on with your questions and I really I really appreciate it.
0: Well, oh, thank you very much.